As U.S. capitalism is consumed by increasingly intractable problems domestically and internationally, elite politicians are working in overdrive to defend their system. In a new article for the Independent Media Institute, our guest, Professor Richard Wolf, argues that in the field of public opinion, this plays out as a story of deniers and displacers. Some politicians and pundits argue that everything is just fine, while others seek to misdirect popular anger onto a series of scapegoats. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are happy to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. There's also a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's book, Understanding Marxism, with a new introduction, strengthening the case for why all of us need to understand Marxism. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's r-d-w-o-l-f-f.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us once again. I want to read the first paragraph of your article, and I want to make a couple comments and then ask you about it and why you wrote it and the main points here. Here's what you wrote. The article came out, again, Independent Media Institute, January 29, 2022. The declines of U.S. capitalism and of its imperial position provoke fear among its mainstream politicians. Their response, in large part, has been to deny such a decline is actually happening. These politicians do this partly by acting as though the U.S. remains and the globally dominant position it occupied in the second half of the 20th century. Thus, to maintain this illusion, they start wars in the Middle East, maintain military bases in dozens of countries, intervene in other countries at will, and describe the U.S. as a global guarantor of peace, security, and democracy. And then in your article, you talk about how the politicians policymakers, opinion molders sort of break into these two camps, the deniers and those who are looking to, you know, deflect and and have people think that the real problem is somewhere else. Now, on January 29th, Richard, 2002, 20 years ago this week, and we did a show about this yesterday, George W. Bush 
got to the podium at the State of the Union address a couple months after the September 11th terrorist attacks in New York and Washington. And he talked about how the U.S. was now in a global war. And uh, we played some of that speech for our audience yesterday so they could really get a sense of the tone and tenor of the times, especially for younger people who might not or wouldn't actually having been too young to have really experienced what that was all like. But it seemed like the U.S. was on the warpath, and it was indeed on the warpath. And it wasn't going to be only about Afghanistan, which the U.S. had just invaded. It was going to be against Iraq and against Libya, against Hezbollah in Lebanon, against Syria. Ultimately, the big prize was going to be Iran in the Middle East. He also declared that there was an axis of evil, North Korea, Iran, Iraq. Here we are 20 years later. In almost every sense, every initiative by the U.S. at that time, militarily and politically, has boomeranged, has failed. Maybe the one place that they can say we did it, we really did it, was they destroyed the government in Libya by a massive bombing campaign. But at the end of the day, there's not a stable proxy government in that resource-rich country. It's a mess. Anyway, Is it because of the last 20 years? Is it because of misbegotten or mistaken wars, foreign policy decisions, or is there something deeper? Well, let's start with, if I can, to underscore what you just said. Take a step back with me and think what it means that the last three major wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, and before that, Vietnam, were massive efforts by the United States to control, to shape, to organize vast parts of the world about as far as you can get from the United States going either direction. An imperial power was at work showing that it could and it would intervene wherever it wanted to declare the people there terrorists or the government there or something, and use its overwhelming military power, which it had then as it does now, to control the situation. And all three of those were defeats for the United States. Vietnam, Afghanistan, and if you know what's going on there, Iraq, which is already a defeat, It just hasn't been acknowledged yet, sort of like Afghanistan was a defeat that wasn't acknowledged in the final years before Biden pulled the troops out. That ought to have provoked a very profound questioning in the American public opinion. You go three wars over 30, 40 years to establish and demonstrate that you run the world and you're defeated by by what? By three of the poorest countries in the world, none of which even had a real military to speak of. The only possible exception, maybe the North Vietnamese, because they had had to fight the French and the Japanese before. But basically, even against poor underdeveloped, weaker, and much smaller countries, this big, mighty Goliath fell down. 
but there wasn't. And what you had instead, and I say this from personal experience, over the years I have as a lecturer in the universities where I've taught, given courses in economic history, and I come to that portion of the United States history, for example, Vietnam, and then I casually explain what that war was about and what had happened in Vietnam before, why it was split into North and South, what the United States' reactions were, et cetera, et cetera. And then I, I finish the story, and then I say, in 1975, the United States' defeat was complete, and the United States was forced to withdraw, and the enemy, the North Vietnamese Communist Party and its army, took over the whole of the country. Well, in the audiences where I say that, you can hear a pin drop. The students, usually, that I'm talking to, can show me with their eyes, and then later on in conversation, that they had never heard this before. They either knew nothing about any of it, or they simply thought that Vietnam was one of those many wars that the United States, of course, won. Well, that's where the idea of denial comes in. You know, it's a human trait in human beings, not all of them, luckily, but many, that if something happens that really upsets you, upsets the way you live, upsets the way you think, one of the ways you react is to go back to being like a, like a little toddler who's out for a walk with a mother and encounters a scary dog. And the little one, not quite sure what this is, and so handles fear by covering over the eyes with two little hands out of the belief, native to a child of that age, that if you can't see it, it isn't there. Well, we know when you grow up, pretty soon you realize that it's still there, even though you have covered your eyes, and you become slowly an adult. Well, this is a reversion to childlike behavior. If I don't admit it, well, then I don't have to talk about it. And I, in the article, I give an example, the modern-day form Around this time last year, maybe mid-year of last year, 2021, the Federal Reserve did this weird thing. It was asked, gee, prices are rising in America. We have an inflation going on. We haven't had it for 20 years, so this is kind of scary. What is this? And then the Federal Reserve did the equivalent of a child, a toddler with a dog. It said, oh, no, don't worry, this won't last very long. In other words, we know the future. What? Of course you don't know the future. You can't tell us how long an inflation will stay. You didn't tell us it was coming, so already your ability to predict the future wasn't in evidence over the last two or three years because you never said a word about what was coming, so suddenly we should believe you... Well, you know, if you become a child again, you maybe believe for a while that you can see the future, or if you cover your eyes, whatever scares you won't be there. Well, we now know, of course, that the Federal Reserve was, of course, wrong. 
it predicted the future wrongly. By the way, it still thinks, because it has to hold on to some shred of its pride, that it won't last all that much, but we shouldn't have, yeah, now in retrospect. But they wanted to deny what was going on by a wild pretense that they knew the future. And then you have the other way. Though there are a few people, even in the United States, who know that we were defeated in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. But they're not going to allow that to be a critique of the United States because they know who is to blame. And here we go. Depending on who you are, it could be the Chinese. It could be the Russians. That's a big debate. Republicans and Democrats enjoy that debate because they both win since they've each blamed a fundamental problem of the American empire on somebody else, not the United States. Or some will blame Biden or Trump, a Republican or a Democrat. And if it isn't about Vietnam, when Trump and Biden weren't there then, then whoever was in power then, a Kennedy at the beginning of the Vietnam War, Johnson, Nixon, and so on, at the end, you become able to blame this or that politician who did the bad, evil thing. I mean, it's an endless program. And so much of American politics, which is what this article tries to get across, so much of American politics is devoted to a debate between the people who need to deny what is happening because they're frightened by it versus those who can't quite go to the denial path, but they found an equally satisfying way out by blaming scapegoats. In the most recent period, you know, we all know it from the Trump years. Trump inherited, by the way, he did, he inherited an economy with a lot of problems that had been kicked down the road and not solved, just as Trump left all of them to Mr. Biden, who is now struggling as badly as Mr. Trump did. Biden wants us to blame China, that was last year, and Russia and Ukraine this year. Very standard. Trump wanted to blame China, not Russia. Very standard. Trump wanted us to believe that a few million, small number, we're a country of 330 million, a few million desperately poor Central American refugees were some kind of cause of dilemma, where something that were invading his word, that needed a wall built as if they were the problem of an American economy that was frightening people. You know, the little child with the dog has every right to be frightened. The American people right now have every right to be upset about what's happening, to feel deeply that the country is falling apart, being divided into dangerous, scary oppositions. They're all right about that. But what we have is a political system that has a taboo. You can't question capitalism. You can't question the economic system. You can't go anywhere near there. Your job is either to deny the bad news, which people, of course, 
understand anyway, or to displace it. Find a scapegoat, blame someone, try to get people to unload their upset, their anguish, their fear by being hateful towards some group that you blame. We've seen this before in history, and we're living through it now. Richard, I want to ask you about, from your point of view, how important the delegitimization of U.S. government is in terms of this equation. And of course, there's the economic function in society, which is what you know most people are consumed with, is like what's going on in their life or their life of their family or their neighbors related to the economy. But there is, especially for a country that is the dominant world power, an unannounced but actual and real empire, its own legitimacy, its perception globally, all of that matters. And similarly at home. Now, in 2000, Al Gore won the popular vote, but thanks to the Supreme Court deciding that there would be irreparable harm to continue to count the votes in Florida by a five to four margin, very can't get closer than that, they stopped the vote count in Florida and George W. Bush became president of the United States. Then you have President Obama getting elected in 2008. A big part of the country actually thought he was an illegitimate president because they said he wasn't an American. You know, Donald Trump helped lead that charge that he was somehow a foreign born Muslim, you know, sort of pretender to the throne. Then you had the 2016 election, and surprise to everyone, certainly to me, Donald Trump narrowly wins the Electoral College. And for the next three years, the Democratic Party and almost all the liberals and centrists, but including the liberals, people who really think of themselves as progressive liberal people, they're 100% convinced that the only reason Donald Trump is president is because Russia intervened and bought some Facebook ads and divided the country on you know hot button issues like gun rights or racism. And the FBI went after Trump as a Russian agent. So the Democrats for three years said Trump really shouldn't be president. And then Biden wins and Trump tells his entire base, look, this is the, the only re- reason we lost was this is the greatest fraud in, in, in the history of the country. And he eggs them on to storm the Capitol and actually succeeds for a few hours at dispersing the Congress at the moment that it's going through this constitutionally mandated and largely ceremonial process of certifying the election results, already certified by the Electoral College the month before. And now you have, I just saw a poll that showed that the majority of Republicans say they will not vote for any candidate in the midterm elections or the next national election who actually asserts that Biden is the legitimate president of the United States. When you think of the last 20 years in terms of how the U.S. government is perceived at home and the multiple and bipartisan challenges to the legitimacy of the process, it couldn't come as a surprise then that huge parts of the population, huge parts, no longer believe that the system is the best democracy in the world. They believe instead 
that it is just really a tool, a manipulated tool in the hands of powerful forces. How important is that in terms of this devolution of the empire on the home front? It's very important. But the only place where I might slightly disagree with you is I don't really think this is very new. The degree of division in the country, absolutely. The degree of hostility to the state that you point to, you're quite right. But I would like to stress to you and to the audience listening to us that we have lived in a United States, which at least since the Second World War, which means at least 75 to 80 years of the last, this last almost century, there has been a consensus that the capitalist system of economics, dividing the production, the workplace, into a small group of people called employers who have all the power and who make the big lion's share of the bucks, run the thing, and a vast army of workers who do not make the important decisions and who do not become wealthy. This arrangement, the employer-employee relationship that is the core of capitalism, we have been told is wonderful. It's the best thing since sliced bread and better than that, too. And that if there's anything that goes wrong, any problem, any flaw, it isn't in this economic system. It isn't in this relationship of a minority of employers who are unaccountable to the majority over whom they rule, a manifestly undemocratic arrangement. This is never the problem. And where do they look to find the problem? Sure, there are scapegoats over here and there, but the one consistent scapegoat is the government. Americans have been trained to believe that the government is the problem. I learned this years ago, talking to unemployed workers in New Haven, Connecticut, who explained to me how upset they were that they lost their job, had no income, it wrecked their personal relationship with their wives and husbands, it damaged their children. And I said, oh, well, you must really be angry. Yes, we are terribly angry. At whom? At the congressperson, at the senator, at the president, at the mayor. But I looked at them and I said, but that's not who fired you. The employer, the employer is the person who told you on Friday that you don't have a job, don't come back Monday morning. I tried to have the same conversation with people who had been uh, evicted from their homes, and they gave me the same answer. And I looked at them and I said, the government didn't evict you, the bank that gave you the mortgage. They're the ones who sent the sheriff to throw your furniture on the pavement out front of your house. But Americans have been taught, no, 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 the private capitalist enterprise is the holy, the holy of holies, the holiest of holies. You must bow down to it, you must say it is wonderful, and you must save your upset and your anger for the government. And by the way, Republicans and Democrats basically 
say that story. The Republicans with more gusto, but the Democrats, particularly in the last 25 years that we called neoliberalism, got basically on board too. Mr. Clinton was proud as president to say that he was getting rid of the government's welfare system. Mr. Trump, likewise, he was proud that he was evicting those evil, undocumented immigrants as if they were the cause of the problem. And you know, the whole world of immigrants is laughing now because the headlines in this country a year or two later than the exodus of the immigrants is all about, yeah, a labor shortage, just to show you how utterly out of touch they were to expel the people they now need, but who aren't here to fill that need. What we see is a coming to fruition. It's sort of the chickens coming home to roost. The anti-government egged on by the Republicans is, of course, more virulent there. So they take the lead. But the whole population has been trained to believe that somehow, if there's a problem, the government is the bad guy, there are scapegoats alongside you can hate, but the economic system, oh no, can never criticize it. You will listen to Mr. Trump, he will never criticize capitalism, he will always tell you how he's no socialist, and if you listen to the leaders of the Democratic Party, they will tell you the same thing. It's ironic that the system that escaped criticism by blaming the government, teaching people to think like that, now faces the worst crisis of its history as the country is falling apart in profound divisions, which increasingly are scaring the very capitalist sectors of the economy who pushed the government as bad guy all these years. Indeed. And one of the obvious things that has created a loss of confidence in society is the government's failure on COVID. The mixed messages, the patchwork system, you know, if in Florida, for instance, DeSantis makes it illegal to have a mask mandate if local, you know, entities, local municipalities or or schools want to keep people safe. And, you know, like, and then in another state, it's completely different and the government gives different and mixed messages. And of course, the New York Times and the Washington Post, which are considered really pro-democratic party newspapers, they have been arguing in general yeah, let's follow common sense health policy protocols. Better to wear a mask, better to be vaccinated, better to be boosted. All the things that are really pretty much common sense. I've been looking at the New York Times every day because I'm keeping a chronicle of their coverage of China's handling of COVID. So that even though China, a country four times the size of the United States, has 5,000 deaths and And not too long from now, we'll hit 900,000 and and maybe, sadly, even a million. The headlines of the New York Times, which, again, not a right-wing paper, not a COVID denialist paper, they are making the argument that China has, has contained COVID, but at what human cost? They actually use formulations like 
China's COVID program is upending lives as opposed to the American system, which is ending lives. But it goes on and on like that. And they really paint the picture that China, because it's got this autocratic system, this tyranny, this super state, the super centralism of the state apparatus, it's preventing COVID from spreading. But at what cost, as they say? What are the human consequences? And when you read those articles, for the COVID denialists, who I believe are doing a great disservice in the United States, but I'm talking about the rank and file person who's just suspicious of the government, suspicious of big pharma, you know, for all the legitimate reasons you'd be suspicious of the government or big capitalist pharmaceutical corporations. They could take the same article that the New York Times is writing about China and say, well, look, this would be true about our own government. So if it's autocracy in China, if it's a sign of tyranny in China, if it's at what human cost in China, well, can't this be applied to the United States? So my point is that the liberal, so-called liberal media, and it's not really that liberal in the traditional sense of the word liberal, but the capitalist media that's not the far right, not Fox News. Yes, they've been promoting vaccines, boosters, and mask wearing But their approach to China has been so phenomenally demonizing for the same policies that it doesn't and can't but help spread the same sort of negative, skeptical, cynical and disbelieving attitudes about the role of government. Absolutely. And if you look at the way that COVID has been handled in this country, it's perfect fodder for my denial and displacement. Trump begins by denying Well, don't worry. It's nothing. It's like the flu. It's not as bad as the flu. It'll be gone in a few weeks. Remember, denial, denial, nothing, nothing, nothing. When that turns out to be stupid, wrong, utterly, he has to turn around and the right wing in America, which had joined him in denying that there was anything, now has to displace it. Now they admit, oh, my God, everybody's getting sick. Everybody's dying. So now they have to displace it. How do they do that? By making the issue not how do we as a community come together to fight this disease because we're getting into it late because our numbnuts leaders denied it all. No, no, no. Instead, they displace it. So we're not talking about the disease. We're talking about the bad government that's mandating something, telling us what to do. And it revs up people to be angry about being told what to do. People who are already angry because when they get up in the morning, they're told what to do. When they get to their job, they're told what to do. When they go to school, they're told what to do. They've had it up to here with what to do. And the right wing captures that rage and focuses the whole COVID issue on the evil mandate, the evil Dr. Fauci who recommends the mandate or the CDC or whatever. Very smart of the Republicans to cash in on the ideology. The problem again is that the reason we didn't have the tests we needed and the ventilators we needed and the vaccination sooner and all the rest of it was because we leave our medical system in the hands of private profit calculating capitalists. They invested their money somewhere else because there wasn't the profit at an acceptable risk to make all the things we know a viral threat requires. That's why we didn't have the the test. We don't even have enough tests now over two years into this horror. Right. 
the government is the only thing that keeps us from having a much greater death count than we already have. But the ideology is very, very powerful. And it's an ideology that is being held on to, mostly now by the Democrats, who still want us to believe that they are protecting democracy by making those nasty Republicans, keeping them out of office. And the nasty Republicans come back and say, these are the people who want to keep telling you what to do, these Democrats. Look at this horrible mandate they're imposing on you. I mean, this debate is a debate about people who have one thing in common. They will debate what the government could and should do, but they will not touch a problem with the capitalist system as a system. They will not open the space for people to ask the obvious logical question. If we're having these kinds of problems, inflation, failed effort to deal with COVID, losing the wars abroad, and I could go on, maybe there's a problem with our system that we ought to think and talk about. That's what a rational community would do, but the ideology of this country blocks all that off, and we are paying a heavy price. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work, the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. There's a new hard copy edition of his book, Understanding Marxism, which we encourage everyone to get. You can do so by checking out his work at rdwolff.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to the Socialist Program. Tomorrow, we'll be back. We're going to have a deep dive discussion on NATO and the crisis between the United States and Russia. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.